negotiate on productivity, negotiate on output, don't negotiate on time, don't even think about time. If you're happy to pay somebody X amount of dollars for Y amount of work, then that should be the benchmark. And if they can do it more efficiently, then actually enable them to take that time because that will change them and it will change you. This is without doubt the best thing I have ever done because for once, it's not something I can count in terms of the dollars and cents. This is something where you can see that you are making a material difference to people's lives. And actually, that's the most rewarding thing you can ever do. If you want a satisfying career and a fulfilling family life, this is the podcast for you. Join me, Joel Lilovich, and me, Lucy Dickens, as we share strategies and advice to help you keep your balls in the air. Welcome to the Juggle Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Joel Lilovich. And Lucy Dickens, welcome back to the Juggle Podcast. Now, yesterday, the 22nd of May, was Flexible Working Day. So we're talking flexible working again today, but in a different kind of way to what we've done previously. Yeah, we have a really special guest today. This interview was such a joy to be involved in because our guest, Andrew Barnes, is just so full of purpose about making sure that the future of work is flexible and appropriate for everyone and empowers our society and us rather than just being about more money. One of the things that I enjoyed most about the conversation, and you'll hear this towards the end of the interview, is that Andrew says that his experience of working when he first entered the workforce and when he started to supervise and manage teams was nothing like the experience that he is now creating for his employees. So he worked 12-hour days and he said that he felt like he had to or it was a badge of honour, that's what he said, didn't he, Mm. for him to do that and that just became what was expected. And so he started by carrying that through when he was managing teams. And it's so nice to see that he has changed his view and that he's now not of the view that, oh, because I did that, that's what I expect that you have to do, that we just see so often in the workplace. Yeah. Instead, he's gone out and done something really inventive and he's created a four-day work week. So you might have heard a little bit about him before because his story and what he's done at Perpetual Guardian has gone global. Before we get into the interview with Andrew, we want to first introduce a segment with our friendly financial planner, Michael Miller from MLC Advice Canberra. Michael Miller has been such a wonderful support sponsoring our episodes this month, and he is back again today from MLC Advice Canberra talking about education funding. Michael is a certified financial planner. He owns and runs his practice based in Canberra, but works with his clients based around the country and across the globe. So Michael, education, it is something that parents spend probably way too much time thinking about. I'm in the (laughs) time of my life where my daughter is rapidly, it feels like rapidly approaching the end of primary school and I haven't really given too much thought. Well, I've given too much thought, but I haven't done anything practical about where she's off to high school. Now, I know that a lot of people are interested in private schools, then there's, you know, public schools, but obviously if you want to choose the private option or perhaps you want to prepare for university, it's so expensive. So do you find a lot of parents coming to you planning out children's education? Yes, yeah, I think this is something that people are often quite conscious of, but it's also very hard to get started sometimes 
And I often suggest the earlier the better, you know, recognising that as, look, it's very easy for me to say, it's not always easy to do. I think part of the reason for that is often around the start of the school year, we start to see these media reports that come out and they have these really big shock numbers like, well, it's going to cost over $200,000 for a private school education. And I don't think in some ways that's terribly helpful because they just make it seem so big that you just think, well, what can I do about that when it's so much? And people just sort of throw their hands in the air and they, they end up doing nothing. Yes. And one of the perspectives that I try and offer on that um, a lot of the time is you don't actually have to do all of it to have provided yourself with some assistance. Mm. If you can manage to sort of save a quarter or a half of that amount, particularly if you start to get to, you know, sometimes it might be mostly around high school years or, or university later where the challenge is, you might be able to sort of pay half of it from your, sort of your salary, your wages, whatever you're earning then and draw on some sort of saving or investment for the other half, all of a sudden you've made that a lot easier for yourself. So is the tip to start saving, start putting money aside as soon as you can? Is that what your advice is? I think so. If you've got the capacity to, to do it, yes, the, the earlier the better. Mm-hmm. The other thing is also if you can pick, uh, I talk about transition points to make it a little bit easier. Um, and one of the big ones can be you know, often if children are moving from childcare and into preschool, kindergarten or, or primary school, you might often find that what you're spending on childcare drops compared to what's being spent on school fees and things like that. Mm. That can be a really good opportunity to sort of grab that little bit of extra money and say, well, that's what I'm going to allocate into mm-hmm. you know, my sort of education plan because I was used to it going out the door every fortnight to, <laughs> to, to pay for childcare. I, I'm not going to notice as much you know, if, if I'm just redirecting that somewhere else. And I've often heard people talking about education funds and things like that. Is that the best way to go, some formal education fund structure or can you just save it in a bank account? Once again, that comes to what's going to work well for you. People do often sort of just pay extra you know, into a mortgage redraw or an offset account or, or something like that. And that's a really good, you know, it's, a, it's a nice, simple way to build the savings uh, and also sort of save some interest or earn some interest yes. in a savings account. There are also education funds that you can use. There are some tax benefits that can be available with those. But I would say the reason that I'm probably most positive about with those is just the separate labelling on it, that it sits separate from all the other money that you might be sort of saving for household bills and things like that. You know, it's quite easy to sort of mix that money up together and forget which bits you put away for education, which bits you put away for a holiday in two years. If you have a separate education investment, well, you know exactly what it's for. The money is accessible if you really need to draw on it but um, you'll obviously know what you're doing when you're submitting a withdrawal form to your education investment yeah the other thing i find that sometimes people haven't thought about is if there are say other members of family who want to help out i think that's where that separation you know, it can provide them a degree of comfort that they can see separately where that's going you might choose to even sort of 
share the statements with them and things like that to say, thanks for helping out. This is how it's growing. That can help with those family dynamics of you can still take a holiday and, and not have you know, the family member thinking, well... You're spending their education fund, yeah. Exactly right, yeah. Great advice, thank you. It's important for you to know that the contents of these sessions are advice of a general nature only, which may not be right for you. Michael would love to talk to you more about helping with advice specifically designed for your personal circumstances. So make sure to get in touch and book a phone call or virtual appointment for this. Get in touch with Michael at www.michaelmiller.help. Michael Miller is an authorised representative of GWM Advisor Services, holder of Australian Financial Services Licence Number 230692. And now over to the interview. So before we play you the interview, just a little bit more about Andrew. His vision is to change the future of work by challenging old structures and establishing inventive measures to help people be their best at both work and home. Isn't that awesome? His implementation at Perpetual Guardian of the four-day work week gave all of their staff a full day off at full pay every week. And as Joe mentioned before, it really was a global first and it sparked widespread conversation about flexible working arrangements, productivity and employee engagement. Enjoy the interview. Hello, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Good afternoon. We are excited to be talking to you about your four-day work week initiative. And just as I was talking to Joe before about the questions we were going to ask you, she kept coming back to, but why? Why did he do this? <laughs> why would he come up with this idea? And I know because you say in your TED talk and on your website that you were reading on the aeroplane and you thought there were problems with engagement and productivity. And so you thought you'd try a four-day work week, but how and why? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're correct. It was. It was reading an article from the UK Economist on an aeroplane, and it was talking about productivity in companies. And the particular survey was referring to a UK survey and a Canadian survey. And the UK survey said people were productive for two and a half hours a day, and the Canadians were productive for one and a half hours a day. Wow. Now, that got me thinking, why is that? What is happening in a workplace? that's making people not productive. And then you do a bit of digging and you find there was another British survey which said people were productive for two hours, 53 minutes a day. In the same survey, 79% of the people who were interviewed said they weren't productive the whole period of time. And about 56% said, and actually we have all these great interruptions during the day. And we look forward to those interruptions because it makes our work day more bearable. <laughs> it's those sort of things that got me thinking, what's going on with the work day that makes people need to have all of these breaks? But also, what else are we doing that basically means we're, we're here, we're present, we're being paid, but we're not actually delivering anything? And can we change that? Is there a way to do it better? So, but how did you go from deciding that you wanted to find a way to change it to deciding that a four-day work week was going to be the decision, the, the answer? What I started to say is what is causing my people not to be productive? Mm. And, and I think that really relates to a few things. Home life. Inevitably, you know, you get a crisis with the kids, you've got a down tools, you've got to leave. You've got care issues increasingly for, for certainly the older staff members that we have. We've got people who are stressed. You know, one in five of a workforce 
in the Western world broadly is suffering from stress-related illness of some shape or form. And that probably means that they're not as productive when they're in the office. So I started to think that if I could say to people, well, look, if I gift you a day off, will that lead to better productivity in the context that you're going to be less stressed and so on? But it also was me saying to look, I'll do a quid pro quo. If you give me the amount of productivity that I'm looking for, I'll gift you that day off. You've then got a day to do all those things that you need to do. Now, that could be recharging the batteries. It could be doing home duties. It could be investing in your own career. It could be retraining or upskilling, you know, whatever it is, getting fit. If I give you a day, does that make your life outside the office better? And I figure if your life outside the office is better, then equally your life in the office is going to be better. You're going to be the best you can be in the office and the best you can be at home. So after you've done this and you, interestingly, you got uh, the University of Auckland on board to monitor the engagement and performance levels, which I think is brilliant because you've now been able to give some statistics behind what us working mums all know to be true, that we can do the same amount of work in less time. (laughs) How have you seen those disruptions and disturbances change at work now that your staff will have the day off to deal with their home home life? Well, let's talk about in two components, really. So the first is the, the work behaviour. How has work behaviour changed? The great story we tell is that um, we decided we would monitor the top five websites here in New Zealand, the amount of surfing people were doing on the top five websites. And we found that as a group, the amount of surfing dropped 35%, the amount of time people were spending on the website. Now, you'd expect a 20% drop if 20% of the staff were out of the office, but it dropped 35%. So we're seeing a behavioral change, people deciding that, hey, a day off is more important than Facebook. The other thing that we saw is we saw changes in how people went into meetings. Meeting times now are down to 30 minutes. They're quite often standing meetings. They've got much tighter agendas. We have people who put little flags in their pots next to their desk, which is their quiet time when they're concentrating and trying to think. Because if you get continually interrupted when you're at work, those disruptions are equivalent to a 10-point drop in your IQ or operating on two times the influence of marijuana. So you end up with all of these disruptions, makes your performance go down. So if we could change simple bits of the work environment, and that's really driven by the staff themselves, you get better productivity. Now, the next piece is, of course, if you're fresher and you're more relaxed, or in the case of you know our working mums and dads, we don't just say you can do a four days. We say you can actually do five days, but compressed hours. So that means you can drop the children off, you can pick the children up, you don't have to sort out those issues on those four days and have one day when it's great. So our mantra is is 100% of the pay, 80% of the time, provided you give me 100% of the productivity. Oh, I love that. Lucy particularly loves having mantras, so it's wonderful that you have one and that you're sharing it. <laughs> <laughs> so I love this idea. You came up with the idea of them working less but having the same productivity and the same pay. And then you gave them the ownership. That's what I understand, that it wasn't just, hey, we're going to go from five days to four, so you can all pick a day off a week. It was, let's be creative here and let you fit it in with how it's going to work for your life. How did that work? How did people as individuals and as teams that need to operate with each other agree how this 
change was going to occur? Well, this is actually fundamental to how this trial and then the policy which we've now implemented works. So the challenge often for companies is they overthink stuff. Somebody said to me the other day um, when we were discussing how you could apply the four-day week to different businesses, in this particular instance, dairy said, you know, well, the cows need milking twice a day. So how can you possibly change a working week for a farmhand from five days to four days because they've got to milk the cows? Now, first of all, that assumes that there will never, ever be any further development in the way we farm or the way we do things. Because clearly, 100 years ago, we'd have had a whole bunch of people wandering around a paddock with some pails, <laughs> you know, chasing <laughs> cows to, tr to try and actually milk them. So the point about this is that you've got to understand as a business owner, you haven't got the solution. Yeah. Actually, the people who've got the solution really understand the business, really understand where the roadblocks are are the people in the business. So the first thing I said to them was, I said, well, look, I've got this wild idea, but frankly, I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to implement it. So you tell me how you are going to implement this. And at the same time, you understand it's a compact between you and me. I will gift you this day off. You give me the productivity that we've agreed upon. Now, understand we still have to service customers five days a week. We still have to open our branches. We still have to do everything that we need to do to deliver the best possible customer service. But you tell me, how are you going to do it? So I basically have had ownership by the staff from the get-go of this process. And that's what's so important. If you try and come up with a detailed analysis, and this was the issue we've seen with Wellcome Trust in the UK at the moment, is they tried to do a fantastically detailed analysis with all the solutions identified before they started and then got themselves confused. You can't do that. You literally have to approach this and say to the staff, here is a challenge, see how you can sort this out. Mm. So what did you see them doing? Did you see people getting together in groups, trying to work it out in their little teams or how did they go about it? They literally sat down team by team and worked out how they would deliver it. I mean, I love one particular story. We have two-person branches on the South Island. And obviously, if you're doing a four-day week, by definition, for two days out of the five, there would be one person in each of those branches. Off their own bat, those two branches said, hang on, what happens if we buddied up? If actually we worked ourselves on a rotation across the two branches, because the bulk of our communication is done over the phone. So suddenly, the number of people answering telephones went up from two to three, even though the branches were, you know, the branch staff One person. were taking a day off. Now, I didn't come up with that. They came up with that. And that's what's so powerful about this. Yeah, it's great. It just goes to show when you give people ownership over problems, how much more engaged they become and how interested they are. And especially because you've given them re the reward, you're saying, you're not just doing this for me. This is, you know, I'm going to repay you. I'm going to give you something in return. The gift is enormous. I mean, I always claim we've had the first four-day week baby because we have a... Uh, we have a staff member whose partner was a chef yeah. and he worked weekends. And so they couldn't really get together much other than, you know, a little bit of time during the week because her week week and his work week didn't really coincide. Now, by giving the four days, they had a day off when she could take a day, which was the day that he was taking. 
And they were newly married and they were talking about the decision to have a family. And because they had that time together, they were able to make that decision. And so they've just had their first child. So you've got another baby as a result of your four-day work week. Yeah, it's fantastic, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, that's great. Or I have another chap who, who tells the story of, of picking up his child from school for the first time. Mm. And the child runs across the playground and flings their arms around him. So, you know, what are you doing here, Dad? Yeah. Now, you can't buy that. No. So this is about giving people something more than money. Sure, notionally, they've all had a 20% pay rise, if you think about it. But the reality is it's time is the valuable thing. That's what we're trying to give people back to get that balance. And I think that's something we as society have to do. And it's easier for business to do it if they come in from the premise of saying, you know, it doesn't impact us from a productivity point of view, but actually at the same time, we're then acknowledging that our responsibility for our staff doesn't stop at the factory gate. We are enabling them to be the best they can be out in society. And that's an important thing for me. Well, I'm feeling super inspired listening to you and I can't imagine why any other business owner also wouldn't be now rushing off. To think, <laughs> how, can I, how can I do this? Because it's, it's wonderful, you know, like as you say, what we find with our community is that the women who join our community particularly are all saying we don't have enough time, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough time to be with our kids or to do the work that we want to do. So for you to be able to come up with this gift of time is very precious. But for a lot of people listening, they'll say, yeah, yeah, it's all really wonderful for him and for them, but show us the hard stats, you know, what real benefit have you seen? Okay, let's look at the macro. If flexible working arrangements were, shall we say, broadly brought in place across the world, by 2030, it's estimated that that would add $10 trillion to the global economy. Now, in New Zealand, our share of that would be about $19 billion and generating between 73 and 84,000 jobs. So there's a productivity impact. If you look at our workforces, one in five of our employees have a a stress or work-related depression illness. Now, say in the UK, that's equivalent to 15 million workdays lost a year. 595,000 people in the UK are in that position. If you can take a day off and recharge your batteries and reconnect, what does that do? The other week I was also in the UK and and of course the centre of London was absolutely blocked with evolution revolution people saying that the UK had to get to carbon neutral by 2025. Okay, what happens if you take 20% of cars off the road every day? What happens if in fact for another 20% you say let's come in compressed hours five days a week. What does that do? Well, what that does broadly, if Auckland had its traffic running at free flow, which is the optimum speed, we would add $1.9 billion to the Auckland GDP in a year. In the United States, it would be the equivalent of taking 10 million cars off the road every year, which is one of the biggest contributors to greenhouse gases. And by the way, one of the biggest drivers of workplace stress is sitting (laughs) in cars, fighting your way into the office. So, you know, there are hard-nosed statistics around this stuff that says the world could be far better off 
if we took the bold stance. Now, we're not even getting to the day off a week that you can invest in yourself in terms of retraining, upskilling. And then, of course, you know, we come to the big issue of gender pay. Um, What does this do to removing one of the very significant barriers to women getting to senior governance and business roles? And I find it very interesting. So you look at the UK statistics a little better than ours, that there is no real gender pay gap for like work up to the age of 40. And then at 40, it jumps to 12.8% for 40 to 49, and then goes to about 15% from 50 to 60. And that is prime care territory, either for kids or aged parents. All right. And so what you're doing is you are you're creating this thing where it's usually women come back to work and negotiate time off. Now, that's the problem. Don't negotiate time off. Negotiate on productivity and then say, actually, hey, I can do that job in four days because we all know working mothers are the most productive people we have in our company, right? But if I'm making it acceptable and, in fact, the norm for all people, men and women, to take that day, and in my company, the only people who are obligated to take the day is my senior leadership team. They have to do it. They have to demonstrate that four days is the norm, five days is the exception. And that, I think, starts to change the balance. And the more companies that could do that, I think then, again, that would deliver a better outcome for society. You say about how you came up with the idea and then you your team's self-managed and they implemented it themselves. Um, it didn't start with a top-down approach, but it does really rely on strong leadership and it relies on you having this broader view than just making money. I read an article on LinkedIn recently and the suggestion in the article was that it was about how to make the most of your time once you've done all your work. And the author was suggesting that people go and do all sorts of low-level tasks like restock the toilet rolls or go and buy milk for the fridge. And there was a hell of a lot of backlash, as you can probably imagine, with people saying, if they finish their work, why can't they just go home? What are they really achieving if they have to be stuck here? And I think there's still such a focus on what we can get out of people as employees as opposed to what we can give them or what we can achieve when we work together. How can we change that? How can we shift that mindset? Well, I think arguably this is why I think our trial, I mean, let's put it in context. We are a 240-person people at the very bottom end of the world. And (laughs) we ran this little trial, and I have to say we thought, wow, you know, be a special interest story. We might get maybe one of the papers writing about it. We might get ourselves on a little bit of a breakfast TV show for a bit of fluff. And as we sit at the moment, now the story is in 64 countries. We've had approaching 4,000 media stories. We have got companies introducing this in eight countries that we know of at the moment. We are engaging with government and unions and politicians in probably about seven or eight different countries, right? So what we've got here is this thing that has suddenly gone ballistic. Mm. Why? I think it's because we did two things. We approached it from saying it's about productivity. 
normally you'll see these things and people will come out and say, it's all about work-life balance. And if I am um, a chief executive of the company, I, can, I own my own. So if I get this wrong, it hurts my back pocket. But if you're the chief executive of a company, which is a public company, you've got to justify yourself to the shareholders. What we did is we changed the paradigm. We said it's about productivity. Everything was about productivity. Does our productivity stay the same? Does it go down? Does it go up? What are the company benefits that accrue from this? And then the back part of that is that then it obviously delivers work-life balance. Now, that's how we get society to adopt this. Because if business comes in knowing that productivity isn't adversely impacted, what's your excuse? Actually, you get better productivity, you get better outcomes, you get lower staff turnover, you get lower sickness days, you get a more engaged, empowered, loyal, energized staff. Tell me what the downside is. And if you don't do it and your competitor does, you've got a problem. Mm. So I've, well, I think what we've done here is we've shifted the paradigm. And then as far as unions are concerned and probably government, we've said, hang on, the alternative to this is gig. Mm, And gig is a very bad thing. It is making yourself available to work, but someone decides when you work, how you work, doesn't invest in you, no sick pay, no holiday pay, no superannuation, no development. Those are bad things. We are saying there's a different way to do this. And I think increasingly, business leaders across the world are sitting back and going, actually, seriously, we have to find a better way to do things. There are the occasional dinosaur like Ma and Musk, but I mean, you just let that go through to the keeper, frankly. So what kind of feedback have you had from your clients? Positive, really positive. I mean, we won business as a consequence of this, even down to the point we had a, a couple of the other week wandered into one of our branches and said, we read about this in Japan. <laughs> we want to work with you. You know, I mean, it has been quite extraordinary. Mm. So it's impacting internally and externally in a huge way. When we first announced it, my staff who were driving around in our branded cars had people waving at the cars. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> You're celebrity. Thumbs up. Yes, it has. And, and, and so we know people need this, right? We all know the world has to rethink how it does this. You can either sit there watching your staff burn out day after day, or you can say, actually, you know what, let's take a stand. Let's do something different. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this will become commonplace? I'd like to think so. I mean, look, seriously, we think the global audience is now approaching 5 billion people for this story. We were the second most read article in the New York Times after the Trump-Putin summit of all things. And here we are, as I said, it's a year and a half since we announced the trial and the story is not going away. In fact, as I always do of a, of a Monday morning, you look at the weekend press across the world and you see how many times this is being debated. I am not saying for the second that the way we did it is the only way forward, but it is part of the debate. And I think it's really critical. Businesses engage with their staff and say, hey, what works for you? How do we make your life better? And actually, if that means we can engage all our citizens of whatever gender, of whether they've got kids or haven't got kids, whether they are suffering from mental health issues or stress issues, whatever it is, if we can make life more inclusive, 
surely that's a good thing. Surely that gets better productivity for the company, the country, and it pays dividends down the track because if we've got healthier, happier citizens, that ultimately will flow into the costs of healthcare. It'll flow into education. It really will make a difference. As you said earlier, someone would have to be completely blind not to realise that the future of work is not going to be what it has been for most of the 1900s. And, you know, this idea of four-day work week, flexible working, gig economies, all of these different ideas are coming up. I think our legislation, especially here in Australia, is not keeping up with the times. And that's going to be one of the challenges that employers face in terms of making changes to the way work is conducted in their businesses. For those people out there listening who are thinking, all right, I want to do this, but I'm not the owner of a business. I just work within a business. But I think that this could be something of value. What do you recommend they say to their employers to get them to think about this? Well, I think what I would do is first thing is I would go to the website, download the white paper and leave it on your boss's desk. (laughs) (laughs) That's the start point. Look, I think it's a valid topic to raise with your business owner. I mean, after all, we're not saying this is going to work. What we're actually saying is, why don't you trial it? Yes. Why don't you run, as we did to start off, a three-month trial? Why don't you give the staff the chance to do this? Because the worst case that will happen is your staff will love you for trying it, even if it fails. Right. So you'll get a bit of process re-engineering for free. You'll get an engagement and a dialogue with the staff that you've never had before. You will get them liking the business because at least you're trying. And even if at the end of it you said, nah, didn't work, it will start a basis for a conversation that means that you can find a way that might work. Now, that might be um, a nine-day fortnight. It might be, you know, four days longer hours. I wouldn't do that, but it might be. It might be, I don't know, a raft of different things. But if you don't have the conversation, The biggest risk you have as a business owner is your biggest competitor puts this in place and nicks all the really good people who all say, you know what, we'd rather go and work for them because they're progressive, you're a dinosaur. So you can never force people to do this, but I think the evidence is overwhelming. It surprises a lot of business owners when I say, if you want to see the very first experiment on this, it was a British munitions factory in 1917 that was producing shells for the Western Front. And they dropped the working week from seven days to six days. And they found that production went up and the quality of output went up. So we've known about this for over 100 years. But it's just that we are all conditioned. I am all conditioned. Sorry, wrong generation. (laughs) Clearly younger than I am. Um, I started my working career in the city of London. And it was a badge of honor to work 12 hours a day. That's what I did. I was conditioned that way. I have to say, I probably, in my 20s and 30s, that's the way my staff worked because that's the way I had worked. Yeah. I now have the luxury of running my own, owning my own business, and I have time to think. And I absolutely know that I paid the price through my life for that approach. Why would I ask anybody who works for me to make the same mistakes that I did? Wonderful. So, Andrew, you've given us so much to think about and we have a a couple of questions that we always like to ask people when we finish up our interviews. 
And the first one, you may say you've already answered. We like to ask, what words do you live by? And do you have a mantra? Well, some time ago, a bunch of friends of mine made a duplicate Battle of Britain poster from the movie from the (laughs) 1960s. And there's a character in there who's who's actually a Kiwi called Sir Keith Park. And Keith Park was the commander of Eleven Group, which was the squadron's holding the the south coast and there's a bit in the movie where you have this i think it was trevor howard wandering around going just get them up get them up and as everything's coming over and you know from time to time in moments of stress i will just go just get it up just try it and they've made me a poster with my face superimposed on trevor (laughs) howard's so just get them up do it try it don't die wondering Mm -hmm. if you give it a go nine times out of ten your gut feel your your base judgments will be right and i think we as i said we saw with sadly we saw with the wellcome trust you overthought something Uh, our advice is if you're going to do this just get it up just try it give it a go so i guess if there's one thing i live by that would be it and again, it might be that that is your advice, but let's see if there's one more thing. If what's the, Leave us with a final piece of advice for employers who are managing their workforce, particularly employers who are managing uh, staff who have children. Well, I would actually flip it. And I would say very much to women coming back to the workforce or women with children who need the flexibility, do not do what my head of HR did, which she's a, a very, very extraordinary capable woman. And when she came back in, she negotiated four days for 80% of the salary. And she did that because that was the norm. Now, after we just finished the trial, I said to Christine, look, you're working four days. So is everybody else in the company, by the way. You're doing it for 80%, but you're delivering me 100% and more of the productivity. I'm going to put your salary up to 100% because you should never, ever negotiate on time. It's about output. It's about what you can deliver. And if you approach it from a perspective of saying, what is it that you need from me? What am I going to deliver? And if I'm good enough to deliver it in four days or three days, that's I should be paid the same amount as everyone else. And I think that's really important. Now, that equally flows through to managers. Negotiate on productivity. Negotiate on output. Don't negotiate on time. Don't even think about time. If you're happy to pay somebody X amount of dollars for Y amount of work, then that should be the benchmark. And if they can do it more efficiently, then actually enable them to take that time because that will change them and it will change you. This is without doubt the best thing I have ever done because for once, it's not something I can count in terms of the dollars and cents. This is something where you can see that you are making a material difference to people's lives. And actually, that's the most rewarding thing you can ever do. It's fantastic. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been wonderful to talk to you. We're going to send everybody who listens to the website, www.4dayweek.co.nz, and that's four in the numeral four, and we'll have that link in our, in our show notes as well and encourage them to watch your TED Talk. Yeah, and if you go into the white paper as well, there's all sorts. I mean, if you haven't done it, if you go into the white paper, there's videos with myself, but also 
with Christine, who you know is interesting in the context that she's a classic of a of a four day to a, to a five day, and then a couple of other staff members I think are in there as well, who talk about what that's done for them. And as I said, that's the, the bit that gives you the lump in your throat. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been wonderful to talk to you. No worries. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Wasn't that wonderful? <laughs> it was. He's so inspirational and clearly just so excited and passionate and has a real purpose in making change. And he's speaking my language there at the end, especially in relation to the outcomes and the outputs focus. And I just wish it wasn't so hard to convince employers that that's where they should be focused. It is hard. It is hard. And it is harder to calculate pay when you're looking at outputs. But it's ridiculous that it's harder to do that because why isn't that what we're doing anyway? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It gives them all something to think about and a challenge, basically. They can all go away and think, how can we do better? How can we get our staff more engaged? Yeah, absolutely. And do have a look at the white paper because it is really interesting and it's not its not that long. It's nice and easy to read. Mm-hmm. So go and have a look. That is all from us today. Yes, thank you so much for joining us again. We would love you to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review so that we know what you like about the show and maybe even share it with a friend. As always, you can find all our links on the website, thejuggle.com.au. See you next time. Happy juggling.